No, yeah, so, so yeah, I can explain. I think, like, I, think oh. I think he thinks I'm a mad woman. Yeah. <laughs> I think, uh, For your husband? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I was like, why didn't you wake me up? I'm an, an hour late. And he said, like, I didn't know you were doing a podcast. And I, I told you two weeks ago. And I said, how am I supposed to know? <laughs> so it was, it was like that. But it, luckily, I didn't, you know, it, it's actually 10.30. That was the schedule, right? It was not 9.30. Right. So I thought I was an hour late. And I really was freaking out. <laughs> Aww. Aww. Yeah. But the stars were aligned so, for you and us and um i i know i know i was so relieved yeah Yeah. but i love this opening because you're really describing how you came to us today yeah is it always this Uh, hectic for you i mean um i think i'm not that great a time manager like i'm not very good at managing time and it there's just simply too much to do yeah and uh and uh you know and and the education system here is not particularly uh, ideal unless you go to, like unless my daughters go to like international schools um, here and you know then they will have quite a lot of homework right and uh, and I didn't send them to international schools because I want them to learn Chinese um, so so and the Chinese, you know, is on me, right? The, the subject is on me. So I have to, and it actually takes a lot of time and there's a lot of tension um, because they, you know, they wouldn't have had to do it if they go to an international school, it would just be English. So, wow. uh, so I have to coach them after, after work. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, so there's a, a lot of, a lot of tension. And yesterday I came back home quite late. I was, back about 10 o'clock and then she sent me a message these days there are it's very very convenient so she sent me a message on wechat she said mama i've got three more pages in chinese and i really want to go to bed and it said go to bed it's okay so there was a lot of emojis and things like that and then i said it's okay sleep is more important just go to bed it's okay so for the benefit of our eavesdroppers we're talking to (laughs) from Hong Kong. Um, Wen is a scholar in English literature, uh, a fairly newly minted PhD. Uh, You graduated two years ago, is that right? Uh, Conferred last year. Conferred last year and teaching at, at a university now. It's a community college, yeah. That's, I mean, that's... Yeah, it's a college. It's, right, it's, for unusual, our it's um, unusual for one of our guests to be doing what they set out to do at the beginning of their PhD. So, even, so <laughs> don't shortchange yourself, you know. Um, when has... How many children? I've got two kids. Um, one two is kids. nine years old. One is two years old. Yeah. So one was there for the entire PhD, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I applied when the other one was two years old. I got in when she, she was three, and the entire period, yeah. And she, and the and the two year old, the two year old, you uh, you were pregnant while you were finishing your dissertation. Yeah, yeah so that's true. I want to point out that I had a deadline also when I was finishing my dissertation because I had taken a couple of years off 
mm. uh, for personal reasons. And so I was getting to the ninth year and they were saying, you know, you have to finish by December mm. 2019 or you're out of here. That's one kind of deadline. Another kind of deadline is you have to finish your dissertation before your water breaks. <laughs> which I exactly. which I have not experienced, but I hope to one day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I sort of gave myself a deadline at a time. She, uh, the due date was uh, August, and I was teaching at a time uh, already in the community college mm -hmm. as a temporary full time. That's a very strange title. A temporary um, full time. <laughs> temporary full-time uh, lecturer and uh, it's a very heavy you know very heavy loaded kind of teaching thing I think it's the equivalence of being an adjunct in in the US so how many uh, classes so I, are you teaching at a, at a time six six classes what um, no that's more uh, than so so 18 hours a week and it's one course it's academic writing so I had uh, I think the teaching that was the easy bit. Hmm. It's the grading. It's oh, the yes. grading that yes. I, yes, I felt right. really was was murderous. So it's a hundred and fifty papers to grade and you know three assignments a, a semester. So <laughs> really uh, so I thought I thought to myself, you know, um, this is a good, you know, this could drag on forever. Mm. Okay, uh, being a perfectionist and a procrastinator. Um, <laughs> I don't know, we all are, aren't we? And um, yeah, also, so. yeah, so um, I thought it's just a job and I need to get it done. So yeah. uh, I just thought I would never finish it if if the second one is out. Literally. So I tried hard to push the... Uh, <laughs> pieces out before I push before I push out. <laughs> I just love these pregnancy metaphors. These Absolutely. Uh, so <laughs> so wait you're... yeah that was quite a year that was 2018. That was quite a year. Yeah. So you're dissertating. So I was breastfeeding when I was doing my uh, viva. Viva was the oral defense. Wow. And okay. so so we had like a very 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 fun conversation uh, on that day. I was very nervous and it was a very early morning one because we've got a, an external examiner from Australia. So there was the, wow. the time difference. So, so we had like a competition of some kind. So they said, oh, I got up really early is six o'clock. I said, I got up at five o'clock. I had to breastfeed. So I, I won. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like everybody was complaining about how early it was and I was like I got up earlier. Well so so this, breastfeeding. <laughs> this this is an ongoing issue. I remember this at even at university as an undergraduate that people mm. would brag about how much time they spent not taking care of themselves, right? Oh, I studied <laughs> for this I studied for this long into yeah. the night or I woke yeah. up this early yeah. in the morning or whatever. Yeah. So you win, obviously, because none of, all, all of them were, were saying things like, oh, I studied for this long, and then I went to sleep alone, and then <laughs> up alone, took care of my breakfast, and then went to class. Nobody said, oh, I, I, I had to study this late and then breastfeed. That was not anybody's college experience that... Yeah, yeah very rare that... for us to... Oh. In Stony Brook's English department, 
there's been a few who've had children, but I don't remember personally someone who was so early in the PhD program and had a child and um, the child was a constant um, presence. You don't, um, but I do. Brandy had one. Mm. Yeah. When I would see the child running around the hall when Brandy was employed, we have um, uh, mm. someone out of No, her mm-hmm. name is a colleague. Yes. Thank you. Um, Brandy, mm. who when Adam was first entered, I think she was still working on the dissertation. No, she was in my cohort. Oh, oh, in his cohort. So yeah, it's just when I met her, he graduated the child, so early. Yeah, but when I met her, the child was already running around. Um, mm. Mm. But yeah, it's, and I think it speaks- Did she, did she finish? Did she finish oh, on time? She finished did she finish? Years. She, she was out of there like a, like a freaking race car. Yeah, so she finished earlier than you did. You were just pregnant with yeah. ideas. Oh <laughs> <laughs> well, and I have to say, those I know, I've known who've had children in the program tend mm. to finish on time or at least within the time. So I'm wondering, is there a certain psyche concept going on about the time management? Like you just said that you don't think you balance your time, but from everything I'm hearing, you describe when I think well, you, you have, balance you have time. You say you don't balance your time well. Yeah, but I think uh, you balance it strategically. I think I think I just I just do it. I just do everything, and then <laughs> eventually, the, eventually things just get done. Yeah. Like I, I'm not, you know, I I got like I got um, into a very systematic, and they have. They have very, I, I, I can never do that. They, they have their every single hour planned or like the, they, they have like a blueprint of the month and the year. I could never do that. Uh, I, just, I just try to live a very full day every day. Mm. Um, and, you know, and there are times that uh, I, I could, you know, just like before I was freaking out and, you know, and my poor husband <laughs> getting everything. <laughs> getting all the shit yeah, and <laughs> but but it's 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 just I just tried my best and just sometimes you just prioritize other people and then you just get up and work until really you're really late yeah well, so, so this is yeah. this is an issue that I think it behooves us to address uh that we you you measure yourself by other people's standards right because what do you Mm. have to measure yourself against except other people it's Mm. really hard to build a purely okay it's impossible to build a purely internal Mm. system of measurement Mm. and it's really hard to use an aggregate of other people to build even a partially internal system of measurement so what you end up saying is this person seems like they're on top of their stuff and mm-hmm. I'm not doing what I do the way that person does what they do. Mm-hmm. So I'm not good at time management. When in fact, this may surprise you, you're a different person from other people. Mm-hmm. And so you're expected to have different brain cells and you're expected to have a different life than other people. And, and so you end, up, you end up comparing yourself to something that's not meant to be compared to. Right? True. You might as well compare two elements together and say, well, Iron isn't as bendy as gold. No, of course it's not. It's iron. Mm. It's something else. Yeah, true. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, but I think, you know, I remember, um, I think, I remember someone said, um, uh, well, by, by the way, Adam and I met in, in is it 2015 or 2015, 16? Summer of uh, Yeah, at a summer, um, it's like a workshop. Um, what a strange place that philosophy was. Philosophy short course, right? It's like a summer course. Uh, it was, um, yeah, Wen and I met at a place called the School of Theory and Criticism mm. that's run out of Cornell University in the summers. It's basically a philosophy summer camp. Mm. Um, what class did you take? Because I remember taking a class in the theory of translation with a guy yeah. named Suleiman Bashir Janya from mm -hmm. uh, Senegal, who's yeah. just an amazing person. That class, that class honestly changed how I think about life. Oh, wow. Yeah, um, I, I was in uh, elef elective affinity, see, uh, uh, like the philosophy of love and nature. It's, it's by uh, Ellie Freelander. So it's on Walter Benjamin, yeah, mm. so, um, that's right. Well, Walter Benjamin wrote an essay on the novel *Electric yeah. Affinities* by yeah. Goethe. Goethe, yeah. Mm. So um, I, I think I, I think I've heard a lot about your group uh, it being amazing. Like, uh, yeah. So I think it was for for me. It, there were like fifty percent of the time I did not understand what they were saying in the seminars. <laughs> um yeah and uh, uh there were also on a, a lot of philosophical level on a philosophical level and also there were just you know sometimes i just felt there were a lot of discourses but people are not really really having a conversation it's just ideas flying mm -hmm. in the room and i it's very normal yeah and so it was people are not really yes. people are not really catching the balls um uh <laughs> but they are just saying a lot of fancy stuff yeah. so uh, were they just saying it, jargon <laughs> yeah and a lot of you know <laughs> a lot of big names that you know i did not read uh philosophy that much and and yeah. uh so yeah uh, uh so it was a bit scary um but i i really i really enjoyed the whole atmosphere mm. uh, okay so the reason why I mentioned it because it also, I think it also changed, um, not not changed my life, but it was, it's a summer that, you know, could not be forgotten. Uh, mm. So um, I made so many friends, some of them I'm still in touch with, like Adam, you know. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, it's just, you know, I remember uh, one, one of the participants said like this is what grad school should be like mm -hmm. and also also it was not representative because i i was in the u.s for seven weeks and my husband was taking care of the kids back in hong kong so i really felt like i was a proper student and mm -hmm. i could emerge myself in all the reading and writing and you know also i was taking in all of the ethica Air and the lovely summer, the gorgeous, <laughs> yeah. The, 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 yeah, all of that. Yeah, so this is some. This is something I discovered when I was there: is that Cornell has gorgeous summers. 
Yeah, I know. I mean, I've heard yeah. the winters are nothing to um, are, are are not are not no. the most pleasant. It was actually it was actually fascinating. Um, this is this is something uh, that Foucault writes about all the time that you can tell what a place is like based on its architecture, right? That that yeah um, yeah. yeah yeah that yeah. the architecture yeah. is serves serves functions that the architect may not have realized. Mm -hmm. But in this oh, yeah. case. It was it was much more the architects had realized it because basically every single place we passed, I'm talking like private homes, mm. had signs advertising winter parking. Mm. Like very clearly, what happens is the hill that Cornell is on becomes this unbelievable snarl of snow mm. and ice mm. and and horns honking and just misery. Mm. And I so think, people do what they can to like, to to make a little bit of money and ease the burden and all the rest of it. But it it's mm. just it's fascinating being someplace that's basically paradise in the summer, mm. right? Mm. Little rivulets of running water and yeah, yeah. flowers yeah. blooming everywhere and stuff like that. And to see that that that's half the story, and the other half of the story is madness and chaos and. <laughs> I, I also I also heard a lot of things I don't know um, about suicide rate. Hmm. Yeah. The rate is high yeah, there in the, in the winter. High. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm. It's it's yeah, it's it's really, really sad, and it's this took a turn. Well, <laughs> oh. it's like we went from Henry David Thoreau to Stephen King in a very <laughs> short amount of time to to William Styron. But I think because there's been a lot of philosophers mentioned, mm. just for those who are now absorbing these names, to flip the scripts a little, um, who is Walter Benjamin? I mean, I I know this, but just for those listening, like what what can we distill from his work? Like what's one of the most important contributions to literary sure. theory? I kind of want to answer this question, but you, but you go first. You go ahead. You go ahead. I would like to hear it. Yeah. Um, so I took a class in um, Bach, Tien, and Benjamin uh, with mm. with uh, one of our Stony Brook professors. Bach Tien is a Russian uh, literary mm. philosopher of the ninth. He was born in the nineteenth century. He lived into the nineteen seventies. Mm. Um, Benjamin is such an odd duck. Right. I mean, he's that. I mean, that's where you have to start with him. Is that he? Um, he wanted to be this sort of all-encompassing philosopher and literary theorist. And oh, when is showing us the Cornell Institute uh, full packet? And folder. Oh, that is oh, yeah. so amazing. That's fantastic. The folder with the um, yeah. What's it called? With the with the insignia on the cover. So <laughs> Benjamin wanted to be this this all encompassing literary theorist, and he really did write about an impressive variety of topics. He was Marxist in his outlook, but he was also but he was not a very good Marxist, right? He writes about he was a he was a famous book collector. Mm. And he writes about he. I think I think there's a line in one of his works that ownership is the most intimate connection you can have 
with an mm -hmm. object or something like that. And so you get this this sense that he that he wasn't that good a Marxist if that's what if that's how he thinks. But also he wrote a lot of works that are coming to be very prescient about the dangers of what he called mechanical reproduction, which is to say yeah. um, yeah. like the, the dangers of art through cinema and through photography, but mainly through cinema, right? He was mm -hmm. interested in uh, a, a, a much more meditative approach to art. Mm. Um, and so and the fact that you can't control the speed of the cinema mm. is very troubling. And he's the very concerned that, about the masses, right? About like how you're delivering this art. Yeah. Especially cinema, like who's it being made for and what's their interpretation with it. But again, this is when cinema, for those listening, this is like when cinema has just arrived. Right, um, that's, so, so that's the thing. Imagine that, Walter Benjamin living now. He's, <laughs> he's not gonna be able to survive. Well, he didn't, I mean, he already didn't survive. Um, I know, I, mean, I know. He, the, the, the story of his life is a very sad one. He, yeah. um, he was, he, it was the 1930s and he was fleeing Nazi Germany as so many oh. Jewish academics were. Mm. And he made mm. it as far as, I wanna say Spain. Mm. He made it as far as Spain and they were supposed to get to Portugal oh and then get out. Mm. And they weren't able to get to Portugal and mm. he committed suicide in Spain. Oh God. Mm. But the other members of his party, as far as I know, got out. Like it was, it was a delay, not a, Mm. So clearly there were other things afoot and that's not an uncommon i think that's i think that's sadly not an uncommon reaction uh stefan zweig who is another great um german jewish mm. thinker um actually made it to south america mm. and committed suicide there and these stories uh, aren't really told which is interesting because i'm now thinking of sabina spellrein who I'm fascinated with her life. She was studied under Freud. I'm taking this into the psychoanalytic direction because that's my... Might as well. Might yeah, as well. But she, she's not credited a lot and she's actually the one who started to come up with the death drive theory. But sadly, she was um, in a concentration camp and died, um, was killed. Uh, yeah. I'm not gonna be light about it. Um, no, of course. But unfortunately, Freud um, and, oh my, what's his name? Oh, Jung, sorry, Carl Jung, um, who also studied under Freud. Um, they don't really mention her a lot after she comes out with her theories. That's terrible. Uh, and her writing really started to disappear until the feminist psychoanalytic uh, revi revival. Yeah. So, but again, I think you're right. These stories, it's important about who these theorists, where they're, it is. Uh, it where really they're is. placed, their history. Um, well, so yeah. I want to, I want to, I want to throw the ball back to when, but the, the thing that I lo remember loving about uh, mm. Benjamin when I was actively studying him is, mm. is that he, he never seemed to write two essays on the same topic. Oh yeah. He, he would Definitely. he would find something that interested him. 
he would sort of wring the life out of it and, and <laughs> try to present what he thought was yeah. about it. And he did it in a very non-linear way, mm. right? Like his mm -hmm. writing, his writing is famously impossible to, to grasp be precisely because he wanted to simulate the journey mm. of discovery mm -hmm. in reading, right? He, want, he, he didn't want reading to be easy. If reading is oh, easy, then mm. it's like watching movies. But the language is accessible. To... The language is always accessible from what I remember it's reading. Almost always accessible. Yeah, it's not like Husserl, because right. I have no, a story about true. that, it's but true. I'm not going to go there. It's true. You, it's true. You can read Walter Benjamin. Um, it'll take some time, but you can do it. Yeah. And and in the course of this sort of, um, mm. I think he once called himself a literary magpie. But in the course of just like raiding the libraries and um, casting about and reading everything he could get his hands on, he was one of the early supporters of Franz Kafka. Mm. Um, he was one of the early supporters of Marcel Proust. <gasps> Ooh. Um, and in fact, his translation of some of the volumes of the search for lost time were among the papers that were lost when we lost Benjamin. Mm -hmm. oh. I thought you were going to do the French pronunciation. Oh, I'm so sad. <laughs> I wanted to hear you do it. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear me trying to pronounce French. <laughs> yeah. Let's not oh, do okay. that to anybody's ears. So, so when, what, what is, what is your... It was a very, for me, it was because uh, I was preparing for it before arriving at uh, Cornell. Mm. So actually, for me, it was very hard to read. Um, there is something very poetic about him mm -hmm. uh, that is attractive, seductive almost, yeah. but, you know, in terms of language. But at the same time, I couldn't quite follow his logic. Like, um, it, mm. it's hard. Like, but I think it was at Cornell that kind of it turned, like, it, I turned the corner, like, I really fell in love with his writing so i can still remember you know look i've got uh, the the work of art in the age of its technological reproducibility and other writings on media right oh, and okay. also we read the task of the translator uh, i really love that one i and i used it in my dissertation um uh the the last i think it was a, a, a a chapter on uh, kind of cosmopolitan allergy. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I really loved that one. And uh, I remember, uh, I, I, I remember I gave a speech at the end of the, 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 the seminar, right? like was there were, there were a dinner and a party, right? Uh -huh. And I, and I gave a speech and, uh, I really felt like there was a quote from Castle the Translator, um, and I really felt like that was an ideal um, uh, situation for for learning. Look, I've got I've really got it there. Um, so, uh, do you mind if I read a bit of that? Just oh, please do. Yes, please. I would love that. Uh, Okay, so I think it's there. So, um, so I said each 
I also have Adam there. I said, how often do you get a recitation of Paradise Lost on a casual walk? And one moment you would still with Milton, the next moment you would taught how to curse properly in American English. I'm sorry, Adam. No, I'm very proud of that <laughs> moment. And, and uh, okay, so I said each of the friends I've met here are like fragments of the vessel that what that Benjamin talks about in the task of the translator. Uh, you are by no means like one another, but together you show me the possibility of pure friendship. So he was talking about pure translation, oh. right? And that, 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 uh, uh, he, he, uh, in, I think in that piece of essay, he was also trying to argue that this is what literary critics should do, right? Mm. The task of the translator, like we critics are like the translators who should, be, you know, take, he talked about that broken glass, right? And hmm. just like you just said, everybody is so different, but together you have, you, you shouldn't be forcing people to be uh, thinking the same ways, but together you create this, uh, it's, it's, a, it's just a very beautiful imagery. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, so, yeah, and so like, I, I think these two, well, I was just going to say, I reading Benjamin again when I pick it up, mm. and I think I might now read that essay again, and we'll have it for our <laughs> listeners, because I don't read Benjamin a lot now, but um, I love how you say the poetics of his writing. Mm. I think that's maybe what I was going into conveying is it's such an enjoyable experience. Like, it might yeah. not be easily understood, but it isn't um you're not going against the grain when you're reading it there, I, mm. he, he's one of these writers where where there are levels right mm. Mm, um, yeah like his mm -hmm. his autobiographical writings are quite accessible and if anybody is mm. wondering why we're spending like a half an hour on this guy and they're like well maybe i should read some of his work too because clearly these people have a real bug in their bonnet about about mm. this one um, literary critic, philosopher, whatever you want to call him, mm. you, you can start with the autobiographical writings and mm. that, will, that will be his most accessible work. And then you, mm. can, then you can go on to the essays that he's written about authors that you've heard of, like mm. Kafka, uh, like who is, who is the French, um, uh, Baudelaire, I think he wrote an essay Baudelaire, about yeah. Baudelaire and Proust and all, and you know, people, people that are familiar mm. um, to many general readers, mm -hmm. or at least easily accessible, right? You can read a few Kafka sh short stories, get a mm -hmm. sense of who Kafka is, if you haven't already, the metamorphosis, whatever. And then you can read Benjamin's essay on why Kafka is so astonishing and it will blow your mind i think mm. i think he does a really great job of explaining how kafka uses the elements of tradition right like like fairy tales and mm. like um elements of the jewish religion and so on mm. and yet he he puts them in this very atheistic context mm. so um not at, like uh how to explain so that so that these elements feel like constraints instead of 
paths forward, right? Religion mm. is supposed to be a path forward, but if you don't believe, then all you're left with is mm. constraint, right? Things like, oh, I'm not supposed to do this because, or I'm not supposed to do that because, and, mm. and, and there's no hope, there's no faith involved in it. It's a it's a very it's a very troubling reading and and I think a very beautiful reading of mm. Kafka. Mm. So so that that's that's what I would recommend. Like Benjamin really is one of the great writers mm. who ever lived, and it's it's precisely what Wen is saying that he that he viewed himself also as in a, in a way writing poetry. Right, he viewed himself as yeah. writing a um some, something that was beautiful in its own right, not just not just a um not just trying to get to to the heart of somebody else's work but trying to make something worthwhile in his own right exactly yeah i think he's like doing some creative writing as well like yeah. this is an ideal kind of criticism yeah. where he creates a new piece based on uh you know a, another piece of literary work he's creating his own literary work and the efforts as well so i think that's the you know, but but the, sadly these days we, you know, in all journals, <laughs> these you know we we don't see these kinds of writing very often, and they're not, um, you know, they are not recommended even, right? Well, I think it's useful to remember that in his day, mm. it, it was the same story, and he did it anyway, mm. right? Yeah. He rejected exactly yeah. the kind of genres of writing that would have gotten him very simple um access to you know teaching positions at the world's universities right if, if he had been of a mind to do so he he was brilliant and he came from a wealthy family like it would have mm. been fine he would have been a professor and we would be um at best talking about him in the same Mm. breath as some of these other uh literary critics and philosophers mm. who we know from that period and i'm not going to name their names because honestly we've done enough names um our poor listeners <laughs> so but but what he did instead was he said i'm going to write what i'm going to write and mm. everybody else can go take a flying fuck and <laughs> the result was that he was he was partially employed his entire life mm. um and yeah, he could be partially employed because he had rich parents, but and then the war came and there were issues. But um it, but like it is saying, he had privileges too that allowed him to kind of do this yeah. freelance work. Yeah, he did. Um and he did, and those privileges were taken away from him rather suddenly. Mm. Yeah. Um but it's yeah, he was he was essentially an independent academic, um, mm. and he was essentially writing in whatever genre it amused him to write in. Mm. He published in magazines. He published wherever he could, because he refused to write in these established academic genres, which mm -hmm. is interesting. And people who have tried to write in the way that he wrote since then have met with even less success because they don't even have mm. the the benefit of being original and yet there are people who who write very turgidly oh, they're doing it now auto theory i love auto theory it's made its return back to the academy 
talk more about that? Auto theory? Sure. Yeah. Auto theory is when you insert your personal narrative to ground your way of reader response. So like it's wow. from reader mm. response. I'm trying to, because our listeners, this is a very accessible mm. book that was just published a few years ago. I read it in a novel, feminist queer theory novel mm. seminar at Columbia. Um, Maggie, oh my goodness. We'll put it in the- I'll find it, yeah. Um, once it comes into my mind. Um, we'll put it in the notes. But it's really grounded in what Adam you're speaking about, which is taking creative license. And when you said this too, there's a certain, this creative scholarship. Mm, uh, yeah. And there's another, there's a book called Animacies by Mel Chen. I really love mm. that book. Um, that's about disability studies, but it takes Mel Chen's mm. own disability studies. And I'm sh I think Chen goes by they and them pronouns. Um, that their disability grounds how they approach life. So it's mm. interesting. It, it starts to come into this um, phenomenology intersection. Mm. Um, and phenomenology, for those who are listening, is a branch of philosophy that how you're oriented in your own space. And I always mm. think of the example of what we're doing now, which is we're all sitting at a desk or we're sitting in a chair, right? Uh, we're grounded <laughs> in a chair. And um, that gives us support. And that matters for our space. Um, mm. And there's been some really interesting there's Queer Phenomenology by Sarah Ahmed. That's actually one I use a lot with how I think about cruising and Whitman. And um, when Adam, you were talking, I was thinking of Whitman's quote that I love and I always, I have it um, in my kitchen. And it says, resist much, obey little. And mm. I think, <laughs> are we in a return? Like, are we in a return to the Walter Benjamin poetic style in scholarship? Is that what we need? Is maybe a question. So, I mean, I think that's always what we need. Yeah. Is, is somebody who is willing to, I mean, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, right? Somebody who's willing to write how they write mm -hmm. and not worry about what other people expect. Um, one, of, one of Walter Benjamin's worries was that he would be too useful. And it's such a funny idea, um, mm. right? <clears throat> Excuse me, when we, um, when we write our um, works for, for the magazines, right? For, mm. um, I, I'm writing an article right now for English Literary Renaissance, ELR. Mm. Mm. And I find myself stripping away the personality from what I write. And mm. it's a very sad process. I, it's, I mean, it's interesting. It's intellectually interesting. And I don't think that I'm less of a person because I'm writing something that is tailored for a particular audience. Mm. But I also, I, I love that he was not willing to do that. That he was, that, that he was not willing to make his work accessible to the scholar on the go. Right mm -hmm. to some to a scholar who just wanted to to skim for five or ten minutes, get mm. the sense of what he was talking about, and then put him in a footnote. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there is a reason why we still read his work a hundred years later, and we don't mm -hmm. read the work of a, a, a more strict academic from the same period. Mm -hmm. Right, 
because his work, we read it for the personality, we read it for the fact that he takes the time to mm. get into a topic and make and make things weird and make things <laughs> yeah, definitely. awkward. Mm. And you can't distill um, one meaning. Exactly. That that's part of the problem is that is that you can't you can't just say uh, well, I mean, this goes back to my own research, right? I'm reading a lot of uh, works that discuss um, Dr. Faustus by Christopher Marlowe. Mm. And a lot of them are saying, here's the meaning of the play. <laughs> Go fuck yourself. That's not, the, that's, 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 that's one moment in the play that you thought was interesting. There's mm. a big difference between here's the meaning of the play and here's a moment that I found interesting. Mm. And and so uh, by simplifying your academic style, by, by writing in this, in this manner that we all write in, you're running the risk of basically lying to your audience. Mm -hmm. But like you said, that's stripping away of your identity. Oh, so painful as a writer. Um, it's true, yeah, it's yeah. true. Oh, the text is The Argonauts by Maggie Nelson. That's, she studied under Eve Sedgwick, who, I'm a fanboy of, but um, <laughs> so many names. Everyone's, but is, we always give a lot of book lists. So this is going to be the book. longest, uh, the longest <laughs> notes um, section to any of our podcasts. It's yeah. going to be, it's going to be like a book length note section to a podcast and people are just going to look at it and be like, yeah, I'm not reading that. I'm going to go, I'm going to go reread Game of Thrones instead. Well, you know who John Addington Simmons is from Victorian England? I've heard the name. Okay, but I, I just had my it. students read his essay on um, Greek ethics, but it really mm. is about offering ancient Greece as the foundation for his category of homosexuality. So he's really the one, he doesn't use the word homosexual first, but he's the mm. first to really enter it into the English vernacular in a medical way. Mm. This is a medical mm. condition. But my students, and I agree with them, it isn't the most aesthetically pleasing text, but mm. it's such a hodgepodge of ideas that at once he tries to be a Greek scholar, then he tries to be a medical theorist, then he tries to be doing mm. some kind of gender study that I love when all of these different intersections happen and isn't it the most exciting when you don't distill mm. one argument i think it, it is be. well there's a sort of there's there's a there's a sort of um desire to get back to the the philosophy of aristotle right aristotle is is sometimes referred to as the last person who knew mm. everything that his society knew mm. which is obviously a gross exaggeration and a lot of his, a lot of his stuff is nonsense, but there there are there are still a few generalists out there who are really trying to to combine the disciplines the way an ancient Greek philosopher would have been able to. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I contain multitudes, right? <laughs> yeah, that is what. <laughs> so, so when would you mind telling us a little bit about your own? stories your own your own academic pursuits okay so um yeah i well i actually have to admit that uh 
because of the heavy teaching load, <laughs> uh, I haven't been able to really, uh, you know, it's so haven't been really able to do a lot of uh, reading and and um, and a lot of you know hardcore academic work like for for this for this year for this academic year. So, but my thesis is on Seamus Heaney and uh, contemporary elegy. Um, I have got it here. Okay. Hey, yay. <laughs> and, it's bound and yeah. everything. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Did you have to do that? No, you didn't, didn't have, have to do to. that. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in, you know, ethics and elegy. I also and, never uh, want to see my dissertation again. <laughs> but, the, but the thing is, um, this is something interesting. Uh, the thing is, um, this 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 won uh, like a research award for the for the for my uh, cohort. Um, but, but, oh, thank you. So I had it got like four chapters. Um, you know, I can I can read the names. The first one is barely elegies, Heaney's acts of redress in war poetry. So it's like. Um, Seamus Heaney and the the First World War poetry. Uh, he's, he, you know, he he's a big, you know, fan of uh, Owen, and uh, you know, uh, and That's he's Wilfred got Owen? a poem. Oh well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And he's 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 and he's um, kind of correcting, not correcting, redressing of uh, the World War One poetry. Mm. Uh, and he used those cliches to kind of fight back the kind of uh, uh, victimizing, uh, you know, I can't even remember what I wrote. <laughs> and, the second, and the second chapter is uh, spatial embarrassment. So it's about uh, sonnets, elegiac sonnets. So it's more about the form of elegies and the third chapter is on Terzarima. So, um, so that it take, talks about Station Island uh, of Seamus Heaney. And finally, the, the final chapter is on non-human allergies. So it's about uh, ecological allergy. So yeah, so, so that's, that's it. And, but you know, the, thing, the interesting thing is I really can't remember what I wrote. Uh, I spent like five years working on it, but it becomes like a very abstract idea. Um, yeah, but I can remember, all I can remember is the close reading and analysis of every single poem. But, you know, the big ideas, I kind of, uh, even escapes me now. Like, yeah, that's really interesting. But yeah, I, haven't, I haven't read this for a long time. It's almost like I, abandoned it <laughs> yeah yeah i don't know what's your relationship with your writing um but i do hope like i can finally i can find i can get some time like in the summer or in winter when i don't have to teach that i can revisit it and maybe publish well i actually recently received an email not an email uh, a message um from somebody that I studied with, um, somebody I knew at, uh, as an undergrad, who's based in Japan and looking to mm. form a writing group with people in her time mm. zone. Because Andrew and I just recently formed a writing group 
with some people from this show. Um, mm. It's the two of us plus uh, one of our interviewees, uh, one of our interviewees, and one of our fangirls. Mm. <laughs> And, um, <laughs> sorry, Mary. You've got a lot of fangirls. Nope, we only have the one. And, she's, <laughs> and, and so she's in our, our writing group with us. Um, and um, I invited somebody else whom I know is a, is a scholar, hmm. but she's based in Japan. And so if we, were, if we do our work in the morning, then she would be doing her work at night and she doesn't want that. So I'll put you in contact with her. Hmm. Sure, um, that sounds good. Even even a few hours a week, the way we do is is um, it's it's supportive. It's um, it's accountability, assuaging. Yeah, it's really yeah. accountability too. It's uh, yeah, exactly. It's like so how do you do it though? How do you do it? Like, is it an hour or like? And, yeah. and uh, are you are you supposed to be checking each other on progress or? Well, or are you just silent and you just... Andrew, do you want to take this or shall I? Sure, I can do it. Uh, we it. start with a five minute, well, depends on... <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, we do it. We do like an intro of we where... We start with half an hour of schmoozing. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> we, so we just describe um, what we want to accomplish in this 45 minute writing period because we're in 45 minutes of silence yeah mm. uh, or whatever we're doing in our music space um and we just say okay well i am going to write a paragraph focused on this mm. um and then we do our writing and once in a while i know i do i'm not sure what everyone else does but i'll like drag the people on the side of my writing and just see like how intense they are and it gets me back into my own process um and that really makes a difference because i feel like without this writing group i easily find excuses yeah not of not write. just sitting here for 45 minutes yeah mm. um so yeah. i i was i was making a little bit of a joke the last time we met <laughs> we we talked for about half an hour because the well, votes are coming in everybody's in a state of anxiety mm. over the over the mm. american election um, the norm is that we, we, we exchange pleasantries for a few minutes. Mm -hmm. We mm -hmm. exchange goals for a few minutes and then mm -hmm. we do 45 minutes of sustained writing. And what I do is I, is we have the zoom meeting open mm -hmm. and I minimize it so that I can have somebody's face mm -hmm. in the corner. Mm -hmm. Like as uh, if they're watching you. Yeah. No, as, as if, as if. <laughs> Sure, as, as if they're going, <laughs> I'll get you, you little bastard. Um, no, as just just to as, as a as a sort of solidarity. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. They're they're doing their writing for forty five minutes. I'm doing my writing for forty five minutes. Mm -hmm. um, and then we then we chat for a bit afterwards, and we go our separate ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and we do that three times a week. Um, it's 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 a it's a weird combination of academic accountability and a little bit of a social life in the era of the pandemic mm. yeah mm. and and i want to continue this even yeah once yeah i mean right, things it's, start the, it's amazing it's one of the concrete things that's come out of this podcast and and normally we address our listeners at the end of the show but mm. if we can 
bracket this for just a moment. Anybody who's interested in joining us, please please join us. Our our times are a little bit flexible, mm. um, and they'll get less flexible as we accrue more people participants. Mm. So, but then we could break up the groups, which is exactly the goal. The goal is to have more than one group, and the goal, like I was saying, um, is to have more than one time zone. Right. So we're not gonna. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If if you're if you're let's say a Chinese person um, who wants to join us, uh, sorry, a, Chi- a person living in Hong Kong or China or mm-hmm. um, something like that uh, who wants mm-hmm. to join us, but you're not a night owl, right? So mm-hmm. we work in the morning. You don't want to work at night. That's understandable. So put your name in uh, yeah. submission, and we'll find you somebody to work with. Mm-hmm. I I am a bit of a night out, so I should I can I think I can I can try it out, yeah, and it would be really good. Yeah, I think it's really hard to glue yourself in the chair and just just write, shut up and write. That's really it, it is really hard. And we work right now. We're working three times a week. If you mm-hmm. if you have, um, I'm going to make up an example here. If you have two children and six classes to teach, for example. Um, and so you don't have three times a week to write. One time a week is still better than none. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I think uh, well, I don't have I don't have that much teaching now, so it's um, it's you it's don't? better. Uh, I have I have nine hours of academic writing, and one course is three hours, which is introduction to literature. Mm. And yeah, so that kind of. Uh, yeah, that course is almost the only only reason the job is worth doing. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, but um, yeah, sadly, but it's 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 better now. And I think um, if I can get things like published, and uh, you can get to like a different, you know, it's it's a research. We have got two kind of streams. One is uh, research oriented. Uh, and the other one is more teaching oriented. So if I can get down that road, teaching will be reduced. Yeah, so that would be a, a good a good thing. Yeah, but the, yeah, but the but the thing is, um, even with um, well, even going down the, the research uh, stream, you still have like nine hours a semester. Um, Sorry, but the, but the, it's not very it's not very demanding like, like a research requirement. Yeah, yeah, three classes. Oh, it's three classes. Three classes, but it's not that demanding. Uh, you know, they they don't because we are community college. We we don't actually have those crazy criteria uh, or these impossible, uh, you know, levels of. Uh, you know how many you have to publish in an A grade paper in mm-hmm. in one in one year. Otherwise, you are out. We don't have that brutality. Yeah, yeah Wait, but the is teaching that, is. Is that a requirement at other universities? Well, a lot of Hong Kong universities really have that, and especially the, I think especially the second second tier ones. They're they're not bad, but they are they are very very. Um, nervous about the rating you know every year when there's this rating of universities coming out they are just so they're so um you know so they're kind of driven everyone and everything is quantitative like it's all like head counts right it's all like how many oh gosh 
published and in which grades. And for our field, it's kind of hard. Like, how do you argue the impact? And uh, so it's yeah, it's it's. it's not so you easy. have to to be clear. If you work at a at a Hong at Kong a research university, university, yeah. In many cases, you have to publish an article every year. Two. Two articles a year, a year. Mm. or you get fired. Uh, I think they give you like six. Uh, so if you are uh, an assistant professor, for example, they give you six years. Um, so during this period of time, you have to. There's a certain amount you have to uh, reach, and uh, if you are in literature, you have to publish a book. Okay, so there are all sorts of requirements, but it's just to really look good on paper. Okay. Um, Wait, yeah, so, so, so it's either the articles or the book, or it's both? Both. Okay, so you have to publish two articles a year and publish a book in uh, six yeah. years. Mm. Otherwise, you're just out. Yeah. That's a little bit more strenuous than an American tenure process. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, I yeah but the we... Yeah, I think that I got a I got a, a a friend who's in City University of Hong Kong and in, in maybe in the English department, and they were uh, saying ridiculous things like you know you know Harvard is our standard, <laughs> uh, yeah. So it's just crazy, yeah. But um, but it's very not very. It's a very toxic um, environment, mm -hmm. and a lot of people just leave. So after like four or five years, knowing that they will not get the tenure um, or they will not substantiated so Where's the and, and they, they raised the bar go? like they raised the bar they change they change the rules um every several uh, every several years so it's just you know so this is more work than a previous generation of academics might have been held accountable mm -hmm. for in the six-year period mm. it's wild i mean I'm I'm all for academics having to do research and having to show their work and having to keep it keep uh, keep it up. But the moment the moment you introduce like uh, an absolute quantifiable amount mm. that you have to write, like some 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 part of some part of me rebels, you know. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. Um, not least because what we were saying earlier, people are different. What if you're a great teacher and you just, you're not great at writing articles. So you can write mm. a few articles in the space of six years, but, mm. or, or you write, you want to write a longer article. Yeah. Do they count? Exactly. Exactly. You want to write a longer one. You want to write a, you know, you want to do a, a more in-depth uh, research, right? And it takes years. Um, and I'm curious even how things like maternity leave and bereavement and stuff like that factor into this. I mean, I, I wonder if it's like, you know, sorry, ex member of your family died, but still get that draft to me on Monday or Tuesday. Well, I think that's the case. It's quite cutthroat. Yeah. 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 So, like, um, why can't we? Why can't we we reward those who work do lead workshops and those who are mm. teaching yeah, the next exactly. generation at conferences? Like exactly. I really think the question here is what audiences are we accessing? And is the oh. work being is it reaching the public? 
like how many of these academic books are going to reach a wide audience or is it not about the wide audience is it about keeping it all specialized well there's al- there's already a an issue of like racism and hierarchy and stuff like that mm-hmm. that i i go to jstor or there, there have been times in my life when I've gone to JSTOR as often as I go to my, my own email. Mm. And I very rarely see non-European names mm. in the bylines. Mm. So mm. you guys are working your asses off and mm. it's not getting to us. Mm. Like I remember, I remember in, in my uh, younger and pr- really stupider years, um, I got I got the um, the the Longman ish, uh, edition of Spencer. This is this is an amazing mm. book. It's it's um, Spencer's Fairy Queen. Mm. Um, every single nine line stanza has a gloss. Mm. It's, mm. it's gorgeous. It's like mm. I, I gave I gave a copy of it to one of my cohort as a wedding present. Mm. It, it, is, it really is something special, and mm. several of the several of the researchers involved in the preparation of that volume are Japanese. And I mm. remember doing a double take and like thinking about that for a moment. And it's precisely because every person I had ever seen as a Spencer scholar before then mm. has a name like Prescott. Mm. Um, and it's so unusual to have like, like the, um, I, I mean, I worked under a great Spencer scholar named Aisha Ramachandran, which is, of course, a South Indian name, mm-hmm. of course. Um, and it's just, it's just unusual. It's, um, we, we work in an institution that needs fixing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or why Edgar Allan Poe is extremely popular in Japan. Like, yeah? I, I think there's more who study mm-hmm. Edgar Allan Poe in Japan than in America. Good for them. That's that's the kind of weirdness I can get behind. <laughs> I think what I'm speaking to is this. Um, I've met a lot of Whitman translators because mm. you both met at the Cornell Institute. I continue, mm. and we're going to have one of them on eventually, who's based in England. I mm. keep in touch with this the Whitman cohort that I all one of them. You mean a Whitman scholar? Whitman scholar. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, who I, we met first in Paris, then in New York when they, everyone came to New York, but the ones in Paris, I still keep in contact with. And a lot of it was on, Mm. how do you translate Whitman in different countries? And Mm. it was an interesting conversation because it was one where I just listened and Mm. understood, oh, wow, these are questions we usually never ask ourselves. And Mm. by never, I mean like usually never ask ourselves in American universities about Mm. the authors. And and I think it's so important. Yeah, what you're speaking to, um, Adam shows that there's a a bias. Mm. And and I don't think we're gonna address the bias by making academic writing even more selective and even more expensive and, for me, it's the cost that really. Yeah. yeah, that's part of the problem. You have to be a you have to be a member of a university to be able to mm. afford to read academic writing. Mm-hmm. It's worse yeah. than the freaking New Yorker. 
you know, uh, what, what about when you do your research, if you, if it's in your field, but if the author has a non-European name, let's say, would you skip it? Uh, or would you, would you just go for it just because it's, the title is interesting and it's published? I wouldn't yeah. skip it. Um, the, the issue of course, is that I'm, is that I'm, I'm usually looking for very specific things. Sometimes, mm. Like, what what do you do if if I'm if I'm researching the um, you know interpretations of Doctor Faustus um, mm. as like like the the sort of moral moral interpretations right people who have opinions on why he was damned mm. uh, what the nature of his sin was what the nature of his attempts at repentance were etc right mm. I'm going to be focused in that area. And if I see somebody who is in a different area and is a non-European, has a, has a non-European name, mm. first of all, as we learned from our most recent Japanese-British Nobel laureate, the name isn't always mm. an indication of where the person's actually from. Exactly, exactly. Um, but but uh, furthermore, like, it doesn't it doesn't re it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to include somebody who isn't speaking to my topic and it's just mm. it has yet to happen so i'll let you know when it happens mm. well and you're really adam and i this is where when we differ in the kinds of research we do mm. like because adam you stick really close to your period i would say my mm. my dissertation is is theoretical mm. so it's not historical right it's not like a period study. Um. No, I'm doing a queer studies project mm. with women and why. Mm. Um, so I use a lot more queer theorists in my, right. mm. like, and I do have Whitman scholars, but um, to position myself. I mean, I guess we're always positioning ourselves. Um, yeah. Yeah, I feel like you're a very um, historicist writer, Adam. Um, I would say that's true. And and the result is that I have a lot less use for people like Edward Said, Homi Baba, Gayatri Chakraborty mm. Svivak. Mm. Um, I I'm I just it's not it's not what I do. Yeah, and I'm a cultural. Mm. I would say I. It's like a cultural studies. I'm a cultural studies. Yeah. Um. I guess literary trained. It makes sense because I did a lot with gender and sexuality studies, so I've been absorbed yeah. by those intersections. Um, and Andrew, how? Yeah. How, uh, sorry. So, uh, how many years are you in uh, in the in the PhD program? How many years are you? So have you been doing my, it? This is my seventh year, so I'm finishing. Seventh year. Finishing yeah. So, um, so the the way you do it is very different from the way I did it because it's a British. British system, so you just go right into your thesis. Um, so that's why the Cornell summer course was very uh, illuminating for me because I actually get I got the chance to kind of have conversations, have a course. I was dying for courses. So, <laughs> so let's take a um, step back. Did, okay. you, did you take a master's in the subject? Uh, yeah, I did, but also it was a research. So the, the British system goes like this. So I think it's like a uh, so it's like a, uh, uh, 
So his, uh, historically, if you get into a university uh, in the British system, now already means you're a, an elite, right? And then, uh, you know, it's just the British, it's just how it works. And then you just, you know, you wouldn't go into a university if you don't want to pursue, uh, you know, an academic life. So, and then what happens is that if you graduate as an undergraduate and then you join a program, which is called MPhil, uh, here, so Hong Kong is following the British system still. So, MPhil is Master of Philosophy. So, similarly, you go into your research right away um, as an as a master's. And whereas the, the the American system is completely different. There's a, there are a lot of courses. Um, you could go from undergraduate to a PhD program, but it takes you know it takes like a long time. Right. Uh, I think Adam before, you, before even you can start writing your thesis. Mm. Right. Yeah, I went directly uh, to the PhD program without getting the master's first. Mm. But That's then there were the two years of coursework plus one year of comprehensive exams. Yeah, yeah. Adam and I yeah. are connected that way because I also went for my undergrad. Um, mm. But in the American system, like you're speaking to when even those who come in with a master's, they still yeah. have to do two years of coursework. There's no getting out. Yeah, I know. Coursework. I know. I know. So I, I actually, I actually wanted that. Yeah. Uh, if if it were not for you know because I, um, uh, you know I kind of settled here, uh, uh, but I the, the dream was that I would go to an American university and do all of that. But um, yeah, but life happened. So I just you know, yeah. But it's 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 not. It's not too bad. But I do feel like it's theoretically, you, I, I, I do feel like theoretically or like in terms of the groundwork, uh, I, I really wanted to have all of the courses. Um, so I think, let's say for just the sake of finishing a thesis uh, and just get very specialized in one field, the British system is very good because it saves time because not all courses would actually um, basically contribute to your final work, right? But um, that's, that's against the spirit of learning. <laughs> so I actually right. wanted to have a lot of courses and then have that uh, rich, um, uh, yeah, just even the vocabulary or just have that, uh, that that would be that would be wonderful yeah, yeah. so well there's there's a practical aspect to it as well which is um i mean look at look at what we're doing when and i met you know five years ago mm. through a version of coursework i mean yeah yeah it was philosophy summer camp but it was coursework as well right and yeah. and so were there shenanigans um, at this summer camp like is this are there what to, is this equivalent to American Bandcamp or it was exactly the same as American Bandcamp, except <laughs> instead of a saxophone, you have Walter Benjamin's The Task of the Translator. <laughs> like, was, anyone, was anyone out of the lines here getting drunk or any? Yeah, of course. Oh, all the time, oh. all the time. Okay. <laughs> of course, of course. What, what we did afterwards was we went to some we went to some place. I. We went to some place and we just discussed what we what we had been talking about. This mm -hmm. this was how Wen and I mm. got to know each other because mm. we certainly weren't in the same class. Mm. But mm. I think um, you were in the same class with Okla, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah I was. So, 
So we, yeah. uh, so Wen shared her class with this amazing guy who is who has since died, uh, mm. quite young, mm. um, and I don't know how I got to be friends with him, but basically everyone was friends with him. So I'm not going to think too hard about that. He was, yeah, he was everybody's friend. Yeah, yeah he, he was, was this just... big, big-hearted, big brother. Yeah, you know. he was older than most of us. Um, mm. I mean, he was in his late thirties. He was also, he was actually, he got the job, like we were all very envious at the time. And he, right. yeah, right. a 10 year track job. And, and he, he is, he's a creative, he was a creative writer and a critic, and he was writing nonfiction and fiction. He, and he was a poet, he's a, he was everything. Yeah, yeah. so, um, yeah, but the atmosphere was so good that, you know, yeah. we, I, I, as I told you uh, guys before, they, we had like poetry reading clubs, uh, creative writing uh, yeah. workshops, and, and I extra theory. I taught one how to curse in English. <laughs> I don't remember the specifics of that. You did, yeah, you did. Yeah. Did I did I did I teach you like when to use particular words, or did I did I help you with your intonation? What was it? <laughs> <laughs> I've I've um, done this I've done this more than once, um, <laughs> and and the incidents start blending together. Um. Yeah, you, you. I think, I think you just. Yeah, you just. It was just you asked me to mimic you. That was all. But I can't remember the exact. It was just a lot of f words, but very in a very you know um um <laughs> in a very poetic way. Well, <laughs> stylish. Cursing. <laughs> well, it's possible. It, yeah, I, I mean, some some people you can hear them cursing, and they're and they're just not getting enough oomph behind it, and that bothers mm. me as a as an artist in the genre. <laughs> I think I was one of those, yeah, students um, of yours that bothered you. Yeah. Quick quick, yeah. quick sidebar. Um, when I first started seeing my girlfriend, who is as I said uh, from India. Uh, she she was born and raised in Bombay, which um, mm. Indian people will know is the foul mouth capital of India. Mm. Um, and she is their queen. Um, so she started <laughs> she started teaching me how to curse early in the relationship, but she would just make things up and pretend that they were real curses. That's amazing. Like she she was she was miseducating me out of malice. And and one one time uh, or actually several times we were we were just going through the streets of New York and we were practicing out loud because the joke is that even though 500 million people speak Hindi maybe <laughs> maybe a few of them are in New York and a few of those are in Manhattan and so you can literally you can literally curse a blue streak at the top of your lungs and we did in the very echoey rotunda of the Museum of Natural History. <laughs> oh, that's a great place to do it. It, it was, oh, it was such an icon, it was such a beautiful moment. <laughs> and the, thing, the, things that, the things that she was teaching me how to say, I'm, I'm not even gonna repeat, and that should, that should tell you something. Um, and there were people all around us, like this was pre-COVID, right? There were people next to us. There were people mm. far away from us. Mm. And we were just we were just going at it, word word by word. Like like she would say something, and I would try to repeat it, and then she would say the whole phrase. Like it was it was magical. <sighs> well, how 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 does it sound? Like uh, how does it sound to you? 
Um, well, so that's the thing is that this is how I learn. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know Hindi, but the way that I would learn grammar mm. is she would say, Behen ka buble, and then I would repeat that, and then she and then and then we would break down the vocabulary words. So I would see like how the words relate to mm, each other. I put together, yeah. And mm. and so that's like a genitive phrase. So I'd be like, okay, that's how you express possession. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Um, ask ask your Hindi speaking friends um, what all of this means. Um, one one of our, one of the favorites that she made up was uh, it goes chipkali ki chutka pasina. And so it's like a complicated phrase. And so you learn that, you learn it in pieces. And so there's like vocabulary words. Um, mm. And uh, chipkali means lizard. So, mm. you, so you can already see how, how weird this is going to be. Um, nobody, and, and I, used the, I used that word, chipkali, meaning lizard, um, t uh, talking to some of Anuja's relatives. And they're like, wow, how did you learn that word? Mm. And there's the honest answer, which is uh, Anuja taught it to me as part of an extremely vulgar phrase. And then there's what I said, which was, oh, you know, you pick things up. <laughs> I feel like now we have to go around with our favorite curse word. Oh, my goodness. Oh, <laughs> no. Ah, or Andrew, phrase, or phrase, because mine's Andrew, Andrew, you start. Okay. So, because I don't usually go for like a one word. Mm. Adam will know this from my <laughs> speech pattern, but I usually say if I'm exacerbated, mm. oh my God. I say, oh my God, a lot. That's so probably tame. what we go to. So tame, That's not a curse word. I know it's not, but it's, it's my sense of frustration. No, but, no, but it, 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 it brings us to the point that, that curse words um, have changed in valence, shall we say, throughout the hundreds of years, right? Like you could use the word shit in Chaucer's mm. Canterbury Tales. I've talked about this before on this show, mm. right? Uh, the word shit wasn't, wasn't taboo back then, but goddamn, mm. you would have been, right? Mm. So Andrew is just, is just that's how old a soul you are, is that you're, you're using words that would have been considered taboo 650 years ago. Mm. Well, very, very, very reserve, cutting edge. I think what it is, is I reserve certain curses for certain feelings. So like, if I said the F word to Adam, and it was how I was raised probably, that mm. it means I'm really angry. Like, I'm angry at you, and I probably don't want to speak to you right now. Mm. Like, I've reached a boiling point. So I try to keep it under wraps in everyday conversation because I still love the weight that a curse word has. Like, mm. there's a certain power it has. Yeah, I, I do too, but I'm just more of an automatic weapon, and you're more of a sniper. <laughs> well, I, I remember I was, I remember I was dating uh, my husband, or, you know, uh, he he showed me the first. There was a very famous crime scene in The Wire, and there's just so many f words in that scene. But do you remember that scene? I have not seen it. It was just. But you're gonna you you're gonna enjoy it. I think. So it's, it's, no no no. Seriously, because yeah, we're gonna include it's, this. It's very Shakespearean. It's it's like every single f uh, is different like in the whole scene because there were 
they were looking at all of the, the crime the crime scene and every single f word has a different meaning and it was so amazing like, that's fascinating i, yeah, I have yeah. to check this out you have to you all have right to. so, what, so what's I your favorite you i can send it to you yeah. so yeah, what's so, your favorite curse word when um i'll, I'll in, do in it in my word. i'll do it i'll do it in my native tongue which is shanghainese yeah. Okay. Uh, and I love this. I love this so much. It's it's pizoting. Try it. Come Say on, it you again? have to try it. Pizoting. 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 <laughs> okay, Andrew. Pizoting. Pizoting. Andrew, your turn. Yeah, it's excellent. You you did such a good job. Okay, so it just means it means you fart and you look in the mirror to look for the trace of that fart. So it's just means bullshit. I think that's that's just something so good about, and, and it's a dialect, Shanghai dialect, and it just it doesn't it doesn't translate in any other uh, languages. No, I think no, no. just I just love that. I just love that because yeah, what what could be better than a fart looking for its own image in the mirror? <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is great. <laughs> That's going to be my yeah. head hazard. Yeah, so so those 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 are actually like I'm going to play against type and say that even though the four letter words are the ones that most use, most frequently dust use. my vocabulary. Mm. I I still have a certain fondness for the for the the imagery, you know? Like mm. like King Lear is is the mm. is, is one of the better repositories of Shakespearean insults because the character of um, what's his name Kent is such a, is just such a great he he just he just has contempt for everyone so he calls people uh, thou zed thou unnecessary letter uh, <laughs> thou base football player base football player. Um, and and possibly the best one is is eater of broken meats hmm. because exactly nobody knows quite what that is. Um, and there are, there are different theories about it, right? Like one theory is uh, he, he's talking to like a lick spittle, right? Uh, a sycophant. And so one theory is that this character Oswald eats off of his Lord's plate. Mm. And so all of the meats are already broken mm. uh, by mm. the time he gets to them. Um, and another theory is that like there is a certain level, um, Oswald is supposed to be very gorgeously dressed, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a certain level of class that's meant to be assumed by your garments, mm. right? But there was also a practice back then of selling sheep and livestock that had died of natural causes, like for instance, falling off of a cliff or um, you know, getting sick or whatever for a lesser price. And so it would be like, yeah, you're wearing the ruffs and the cuffs, but you're still an eater of broken meats. Mm. So there's like, this is, this is what I love is the idea that that's somewhere right now, there's a bunch of Shakespeare scholars mm. discussing the insults. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole shirt. If you look up Shakespeare's insults, you can buy like, there's 50 insults. On oh, it's, a, it's an industry. There are books of Shakespeare's insults. Yeah. There's, there's a coffee mug with all the yeah. Shakespearean insults. There's, yeah. I guess I'm really fascinated with the Christian libel phrases, like his blood, his oh, wings. Oh, yeah. Um, 
pe people will some, sometimes still say things like zounds if they're trying to sound old fashioned and highfalutin and they don't realize that zounds is a contraction of God's wounds. Well, and I guess it's, you know what, I'll say the word. I, so I would probably never say this in an interview, but because it's for an academic purpose, I'll say it. But I think a word, I love an origin of a curse. See, Adam's already covering his eyes. Uh, I'm but, my eyes because you're acting like saying the word fuck is No, 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 fuck. it's not gonna be that. It's oh, going no. to be motherfucker. And mm. I love You're the so origin. Dainty. Andrew's got one pinky raised while he says motherfucker. <laughs> but, <laughs> I think that it speaks to that Oedipal rage and yeah. all of those origins are so fascinating. And I'm sure if someone teaches a literature and curse course. I, they have to. I hope so. I may, I may kill them and take their place. Well, so in Bombay, they go a step further. They've got, they've got madar chod, which means motherfucker, but they've mm. also got behin chod, which means sister fucker, which I think is a much... Ooh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like it, 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 it scintillates off the tongue. It's beautiful. Mm. Oh. You have the same kind yeah. of phrase like that one? We have that, yeah. We we have that. It's 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 uh, we we have exactly that, that, and then you have it in Cantonese, mm. and you have it in Mandarin. Different versions. You have it in Shanghainese, yeah. And I, I really couldn't, you know, I couldn't bear listening to the Shanghainese version. It's just you know so vulgar, so ugh, so. <laughs> so now you have yeah. to teach us how to say it. <gasps> <laughs> no. <laughs> No. Uh, well, which one are you comfortable teaching us to say? None of them. It's like, no, I'm not doing. It's okay. You don't have to do this one. No, it's not a word. It's not a word you're going to be walking around saying in the streets. I would. No. I mean, I don't go in the streets anymore. So, so you're safe on that. But I'm going to say it the next time I teach Hebrew school. Well, the thing what is, I, I hear uh, as I grew up, I, I heard a lot of people. I as I grew up, I heard a lot of people saying that in the streets, but I didn't know it was so specific that it actually, <laughs> like, it actually has the organ. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so later on, so I, I, you know, by the way, I, I, I grew up as a very naive <laughs> girl. So, so I was quite shocked when it was explained to me like every single word and so I was really shocked well, by so who explained it to you my friends yeah, yeah. At, in high school and they were like how come you didn't know it's like are you are you living in, <laughs> in another world yeah. well obviously yeah. your parents never your parents didn't use it in every never no. and I think that's a distinguishing I think that's important because why I also slowly parse when I say mm. a curse word is I think because I always would hear my parents do that or anyone in my family. Like no one just casually uses curses yeah. in conversation. Mm. And I think it's like, even my mom will say, well, I'm going to say this word now, be ready. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's like she, she really oh, oh yes. Seriously? 
Like saying a curse yeah. word is the striptease from the musical Gypsy, and you exactly gotta, it is. It's 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 Gypsy. Do a whole like. song and dance. <laughs> and well, I would always say sugar. So that was our. Oh. Of course you would. See that to me is vulgar. That to me is vulgar. Contempt on his face. Yeah. When okay. when when like. When we talk about like which which words are so vulgar that you couldn't say them, mm -hmm. I think that I would clam up worse than when and Andrew if somebody told me to say, see I can't even do it like to say mm -hmm. to say sugar instead of it, <laughs> it's it, it's just it's 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 morally wrong, and that and and I think that's because every time when I was growing up, every time my mom lost her keys, I learned a new exciting word. Mm. <laughs> but but yeah. So you want to call basically you want to call uh you know the FF right? <laughs> Not, <laughs> you don't want it to be. Yeah, uh, but uh, you know, I learned a lot. Like I, I, I actually because my husband is British, so he curses a lot, and I was, I was shocked by how, you know, because because I have this, as I grew up and as I learned English, we have this, um, we associate uh, prestigious status with British English or the Queen's. Oh yeah, that's uh, wrong. English, right? Mm. So so um, when that's I first wrong. visited uh, Britain, I was in London, and I was shocked to see. Uh, vulgar people spe speaking very standard British English. I thought, I thought, so like eggers and, you know, you know, <laughs> like wanderers, uh, homeless people, and they were all oh, this, this really beautiful standard English. I was like, <laughs> it took me so long to acquire this, and this is, <laughs> yeah. so it's, yeah, yeah, and yeah, I have, I remember an episode of uh, bringing up our older daughter, and David, my husband, he curses a lot when he drives. So, oh boy. Um, so yeah, he's he's really foul mouthed when he's he drives. So, so um, but the thing is, my daughter was barely speaking, um, uh, and at the time there was a turn and there was a really bad, you know, the the, the driver in front of us mm. stopped really all of a sudden, and then David did not even say it, but I think it was the emotion permeating in the car and my daughter just said fuck <laughs> for him <laughs> and then yeah and, and then since then he never cursed in the car because he got it he, yeah but he she wasn't speaking she wasn't speaking but it was the emotion and you could it feel was it. so perfect yeah it was so perfectly timed and we were all like Oh my god. But she's your she ideal just... close reader. You've raised a close reader. <laughs> she knows the mood of the room. Yeah, exactly. Well, so does she say bloody hell a lot or not really? No, it's just yeah. the F word. It's just the F word, yeah. Good so word. but that was so it yeah. Oh, that's it was really a, funny. It, it was an education for us. That that yeah. it I, I gotta say that was a twist ending. Because I was really expecting the usual story about like an adult saying something and then a child mimicking it, but no, no, no. This mm. child, this child is 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 a step up. Yeah, she's uh, filling in the gap. Exactly. Before before he could say it, before he said it, she already stepped in. She's and trying to be helpful. It was perfect timing. I love that. <laughs> so so so. 
I watched my I've I have two little brothers and I've watched my tongue around them. Uh, my my dad remarried. They're now I want to say thirteen and fifteen, although that's not exactly right. Um, and so I've watched my tongue around them, but also I've sort of been with them as they learn to curse, not from me, you understand, but from their friends. Um, and I'm pretty good at keeping a deadpan in such situations, but I really don't want to. Cause I'm, cause it's a, it's adorable. Like when, a, when an 11 year old learns these words for the first time and just starts spouting them like a stevedore on the dock, it's gorgeous. <laughs> it's something, there's something so beautiful about it. Like I want to, I want to, I want to get out the, the, the cell phone and start recording like baby's first blue streak. <laughs> show it to their yeah. grandkids one day like this is the comedy <laughs> i feel like this is this is the levity that <laughs> well it's a, it's a little bit unexpected i mean god knows we 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 need a a break today but like i mean one we've been talking about the turmoil in the united states uh mm. at, at length and that's all you can hear of in the news but Hong Kong is far from quiescent as well. Mm. And so, so this is a first for us. We had such a wonderful time talking to Wen that we decided not to cut any of the topics that we covered and indeed not to cut any of the exciting and interesting moments from the topics we covered. Right, Andrew? Yes. And we thought we would all leave you on the edge of your sea and be very theatrical about this. So join us next week <laughs> for part two, where we're going to transition into Wen's own experience of the civil unrest that she has been face to face with while teaching in Hong Kong. Um, and speaking to the sign of the times and the current moment. And we thought that this would be very fitting to end our season one. So join us all next week for part two. Yeah.